The breaches come up, they're getting bigger, they're louder, they're more damaging to society. But all that breaches are to me, it's that momentary reminder, security really matters a lot. We are entering a new era. Everything you say must be more precise and taken to a new level of rigor. Think of the culture of software development. Once you get everything working, don't touch it, it works. And that's been the mentality for decades. And that mentality is destructive when it comes to third-party library security. This is why we're talking. This is why we're here. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. I'm excited to announce that The Secure Developer has expanded into a fully-fledged community. Check out thesecuredeveloper.com for great talks and content about developer security and to ask questions and share your knowledge. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Today we have an awesome guest, one of the, you know, maybe the most well-known figures in the uh, world of application security, or uh, definitely one of the more nose-making ones of it, is <laughs> uh, Jim uh, Manico. Welcome, Jim, to the show. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Guy. It's, it's great to be here. Cool. So we've got a lot of, you know, great things to sort of talk about here. But I think, you know, for the sort of three people in the audience that might not know uh, who you are, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are, what you do, uh, maybe a little bit about, like, how you got into this sort of world of security, AppSec? Absolutely. Guy, I'm a security educator. I travel around the world. I teach software developers to write secure code with a team of different trainers, part of my company. I've been a developer since I was a kid, about so 30 years of writing code. I started as a Commodore 64 uh, assembly developer and coding ever since. I was brought into security by Stephen Northcutt, who is a, a fellow resident on the island of Kauai, where I live. And Stephen, maybe I think 20 years ago, said, Jim, anyone can be a developer. You need to be a developer who studies security, and it will be a great benefit to your career. And I listened to him, and I'm grateful that Stephen Northcutt dragged me into the security industry. And now I'm doing secure coding for a living, and I love doing it. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's quite insightful also 20 years ago, right? Like, that's some forward thinking there. Absolutely. To see this coming. I think t- today it's... Uh, I think a slightly more well-known fact that you know security is key. Absolutely. And I guess so. You've lived and you've sort of evolved. Like you're doing the security education for a good while now. Has that always been the case? Like I guess how long has it been security education versus the developer? And you know I guess uh, what was that tipping point? Kind of going from doing the coding to doing the training. Well, I started my firm about four years ago and have been doing like 100% developer training for a little more than four, almost five years now. And other jobs I've had over the last 10 years, I used to work for White Hat. I did training for them. I used to work for SANS. I did training for them. And it was always a part of my job. This is the first time in my life where training is my 100% of my job. I was in the classroom yeah. over 100 days last year. And I love it. It's not just teaching. It's research. It's studying. It's doing sample coding. It's reading other people's research. It's participating in the conversation of application security, trying to actually contribute something. It's working at OWASP as a volunteer, helping with standards. So it's a whole collection of activities around being able to be a good educator. Again, I just love doing it. This is the greatest puzzle of software development and it's not just my job, it's my passion. I, I love doing application security, it is fun. That's uh, awesome, well, and we need, we need kind of more of that knowledge disseminated, you know, and kind of uh, the sooner the better as well. So, you know, it's all, uh, it's all very, very important gospel. 
So I guess as we, you know, let's dig into that. So like, so we're talking, you know, security education, developer security, you know, whatever, even with sort of that narrative of it being a good, good sort of career choice these days. Where do you think we stand today? So like, you know, you go around, you talk to these developers, do people know security? What's the sort of state of affairs do you feel around developers kind of knowledge and maybe adoption of security? Let me take a step back. I think it's really key that companies get how important this is. Like when I was brought into training, say 10 years ago, it was a quirky thing. It was something to do on the side because they had some extra budget lying around or because <laughs> compliance told them to do it. They did it and moved on with their life. Today, training is is something that I have to take very seriously. I mean, I've always taken it seriously, but well, 10 years ago when people took the training and didn't think about it for a year. Yeah, they didn't care about the results. They wanted to check the box that they've done the training. And today, like 10 years later, where every little slide you talk about, it's going to affect their policy. It's a whole different <laughs> level of responsibility. So I've had people like call me and say, we just earmarked 30 million so we can turn our entire infrastructure to internal HTTPS and stronger transport security inside of our network. When I first heard that, that was about three years ago, like my jaw hit the floor like, we are entering a new era of everything you say must be more precise and taken to a new level of rigor because of how much people care about this topic now. So I think this is the, this is the golden era of application security for me because we have a mature tool set for assessment. We have like really good books and literature on assessment, and we have a, a plethora of intelligent people thinking about building securely. It's not a quirk anymore. It's now a core part of development, at least among the teams that, that I interact with. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I love kind of those comments on, in general, like about adoption of security. Uh, specifically, HTTPS, I think, is like one of the big wins of the world of security. I agree. I know just like very much the sort of carrot and stick, you know, on one hand, making, you know, you rank higher on Google or things like that and advocating for security. On the other side, you know, making it easier, you know, with less encrypted likes and then, you know, alongside all of those, you know, having the browser start marking you as not secure. Exactly. So I guess, you know, we've sort of seen this shift a little bit, which I, I relate to, and I feel maybe there's like two trends, maybe like, tell me if you agree with this. I think there's two trends driving this, you know, on one hand, maybe once again, the stick or sort of the external one, which is breaches, you know, just like more and more, you know, security problems that occur and the implications of not doing it being a big deal. And on the flip side, what you have is you have sort of this accelerated development, right? This like everything is becoming software, you know, your clouds are becoming software, your 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 like your servers, your network, your your infrastructure, everything is becoming code. And the people writing that code need to secure it, right? So almost like the scope of what is application, right? What is application security has grown. Do you feel those? Like, do you see those two narratives? Do they make sense to you at all? I think it absolutely does. Let me start by saying this kind of question, this is important. Like, what's motivating people to do AppSec? This is not something I think about a lot, right? I'm usually worrying about how can I get this SDLC program to be rigorously within the organization? So just bear with me on this, is that, yes, the breaches come up and they're big. They're getting bigger. They're louder. They're more damaging to society. Yeah. But all that breaches are to me, it's that momentary reminder, oh shit, security <laughs> really matters a lot. And then it goes away and we hear it in the news. So it's important. Those reminders are important. It helps me justify budget. It helps me justify time. It, it helps explain to the board and the C-level staff why application security matters. We have to very often rethink everything about how we write software. Yeah. That's helpful, but it doesn't change the culture. It doesn't 
actually fix the SDLC program. It's just the stone in the pond to get the process started or continued or renewed in some organization. It's important, but it's just a small piece of the puzzle. Right. The next one you were saying is we see everything moving to software. And again, this is really critical in that all of infrastructure has changed now. Suddenly developers or developer-like people are now directly involved in infrastructure. I see in some people's top 10 lists that cloud configuration is one of their most difficult issues to get their hands around from a security point of view. Right. So these two things are critical. But I'm going to say that, again, breaches are the stone in the pond to give us a reminder that security matters at different parts of our company's evolution. And everything moving to software is yet another reminder of how important software is. I'm going to say something controversial that a lot of people don't agree with. I think the move to the cloud in my world is the same old, same old. And no one agrees with me here. So I'm I'm on my own here. It's more code. My form that collects data that goes to a database or my report or my advanced business logic financial flow, that code's all mostly the same, man. I have the same vulnerabilities to struggle with there. Yes, as I attach this code up to the cloud, I have all different kind of of ways to hook my code and application to cloud services. I agree with that. I've been slinging code for 30 years. It's, It's all the same old code to me is what I'm saying. But it's the same old level of importance. It's the same old, we have to take this seriously. It's the same old, we need to train our workforce and have assessment tooling in place and have C-level staff supporting these efforts and take that product manager who doesn't drive security but has control of all of my requirements to take them to the roof and drop them off the roof. Sorry about that. I'm Sicilian. We do that kind of stuff. And like, and get the product manager out of our way. <laughs> all those, what I think of as core problems in AppSec delivery, guy, that's all the same. And- What I see is different is the acceleration of how much people are taking this seriously. And that's hard. Yeah, and I think the acceleration maybe is the key word. So I'm actually like, I'm right there with you, which is like the fundamental problems are like, you know, input validation, right? Like, you know, it's just like, you know, some core elements that we're now doing in sort of the same premises. I do think we've enlarged the scope a little bit. So it used to be that, you know, AppSec couldn't compromise, you know, your storage. But today, you know, maybe your sort of cloud configuration is indeed sort of an aspect of your code. But beyond that, maybe it doesn't impact security directly, but it doesn't it impact like the development pace. And by doing so kind of, you know, kills the notion of like a gate, you know, kills the notion of, of an external audit. Now, that's the point I think is critical here. It's that the general attack surface of all software has grown dramatically in 10 years. Yeah. Infrastructure, in terms of how we host our software, infrastructure of the world, interconnectivity of everything, absolutely. The, the need to get software security right has grown dramatically in an unmeasurable way just in the last five or 10 years. And the fact that so much has moved to the cloud and our code is now infrastructure, that's a critical part of that mammoth growth of attack surface of software. The drumbeat's getting louder. The importance of getting this right is getting louder. Yeah. The frameworks and the kinds of ways to deploy to the cloud, the frameworks we're using, all that is expanding as well, which makes it a lot more difficult to get our hands around application security. But I get your point, and I'm with you, Guy. Attack surface growth. Yeah, I love kind of the, the guidelines. So like, I guess the bottom line of it's kind of merging the perspective is to say, it's like software security remained the same, but what is software 
and the pace of software has changed. Yeah. So, you know, like we still need kind of those same mechanisms, but just the context of like what's at stake and maybe the complexity of how to get it done is the thing that has changed because software has grown, right? I'm going to steal that quote from you and say it in conferences like <laughs> I thought of it so I could sound smart. That was awesome. <laughs> that's what we do. That's what we do, you know? That's like the purpose of podcasts, you know? That's the, uh, that's the whole intent. So how do we do it, you know? So like, you know, maybe let's kind of get down a little bit from the, okay, fine, you know? So like, it, it matters, you know, this is important. It's growing and secure. It's growing in importance. You know, budgetary-wise and all that, like maybe organizations are like getting it a little bit more than before and they're willing to like, you know, drop their $30 million on that, on HTTPS initiatives. How do we kind of get it embedded? Like you come in, you talk to a shop, you know, what would you say are like the kind of core premises that need to succeed for people to indeed like, you know, get AppSec right? From the beginning of the SDLC, I like requirements and training. You know, I, I like training not not just because I do it for a living. This I, I recommend my competitors to do training as well. I mean, just in general, I want an educated workforce, even the basics of application security, number one. Number two, I want to have a clear definition of security requirements so we're all on the same page of what this thing called application security really is. And number three is having a security champion. If you don't have an AppSec expert directly embed it with your team, your likelihood of having application security gets low really quick. So three things, security requirements, number one, a trained workforce in knowing the basics of secure coding and application security, and having a security champion that developers have access to that can lead the intellectual part of what it means to write secure software. Those are usually three of the first things that I'm looking for And I'll even give you a fourth. And alongside of that, I usually want to ramp up basic assessment infrastructure very early on if that's not there already. These days, it usually is there in some way already. But there's my three and a half. Okay, cool. So let's like like pick them apart a little bit. So the requirements bit, how do you handle that? So you have good security requirements, high level, and maybe like more specifically, how do you see these type of security requirements manifesting in an agile world. So like you've got a place, you know, it's not like a PRD that you write and like a year down the road, some software would be delivered. You know, how do you do security requirements and give us some, some nuggets of best practices there? From the open source world, I want to avoid doing something like using an OWASP top 10 for my requirements. This is just an awareness document. This is meant to, again, do teaching and education to get people started in web security. For that matter, I want to keep away from the OWASP proactive control. This is another awareness list. The standard I start with is the ASVS. This is OWASP Application Security Verification Standard. The 4.0 release is coming out in a matter of weeks. This is like 200 plus requirements. So as an early stage, I want to take all the main stakeholders, a security pro, product manager, some of the lead developers, and go through the ASVS and fork it completely for their company. And sometimes that's where we stop. Sometimes we fork the standard. Nobody uses it. But we've gone through a training process to walk through every single requirement that we need to care about with the technical leads. So that's the weakest maturity of rolling out requirements. At at the high level, we have requirements rolled out and we've translated all those requirements into where it exists in the framework, where we need to do it ourselves manually, or where we have third-party tools to help us, or where you need to go talk to Bob to go get help on that because we already have our own standards When you're taking the requirements and breaking them apart and really getting into the details of how you as a company are going to address them in that forking process, that's when I think requirements are are the most useful. But again, let me go back to the beginning. 
I've seen people roll out requirements, never read them, yeah. and still have still have that process be helpful because I was able to, or you know, the, the tech leads were able to influence the lead developers for four or five hours just talking about what's important for security. And even that is a useful process. Yeah. So I dare say, no matter how you roll them out, it's going to be helpful in some way. So, so challenging though a little bit. So, like, I'm fully with you. By the way, like, you know, fine. Like, you're you know raising awareness and and like bringing practicality to it. You know, sort of bringing some like you know what does it mean to be secure? You know, sort of like these concrete elements is, is spot on, right? That's sort of immediate value there. You talk to a lot of organizations, right? You train, you sort of you see how they operate. What's an ideal scenario in an agile team, like a team that sort of works in the sprint environments? How have you seen the security requirements embed there? Do you see, like, is this an area that we've developed? Are there good examples? Because there's no, like, they're going to have the requirements for whatever, like the product. But, you know, how does, when it gets the dev, you know, does it make it into the sort of the sprint feature plans? How do you, how do you see that happening? Sure. Before you start sprinting, now the thing about agile is, is agile is a mix of discipline and fast moving and a lot of people will take the discipline part of Agile and throw it out the window <laughs> and move real fast yeah. and change requirements as they go. In that scenario, you're screwed. You're not really doing Agile. You're just moving fast in a clumsy way. The point is, let's take the pieces of Agile that are disciplined and consider those for a moment, right? I want to have a well-trained workforce on the framework and platform that we're using. And part of that framework and platform is understanding the security controls of using that framework. So before you started sprinting at high speed, if you mapped all your requirements to your environment and made it clear which one of those requirements are handled by the framework and had a trained workforce who knew how to use the framework properly, now we're agile. Now I can move extremely fast and I have you know, basic static analysis or basic assessment that's checking my work as I go fast and furious every check-in. Now I'm starting to do AppSec. So it's that pre-step of mapping your requirements to responsibilities. Do you have those libraries available? Do you have the authentication and access control methodologies established already? Do you have your key storage for cryptography dialed in already? If all these pieces are missing and you're in an agile world, I claim you're not agile. You're not AppSec agile. You're running fast, but all these Basic components to secure coding are not in your environment yet. I can't help you. You know, you're at the beginning. Suppose you do have an authentication service and you have an access control best practice really well established, your own homegrown permission-based system that's real detailed. It's great. And you've gone through basic training. You have subject matter experts. You have a great assessment DevOps pipeline dialed in. When people think DevOps, they're mostly thinking, yeah, I have a pipeline of tests, great. Yeah. If you have those pieces into play, then requirements, the ones that you're not addressing will become helpful. Now I know that these 20 requirements I'm not addressing, so I can target education just to the area of ASVS where my framework doesn't handle it, where my subject matter experts are not into that, and I can limit the focus of what more I need to do to spread the word on those requirements. So that, again, if, if you're actively using requirements in a mature DevOps, agile kind of world and using them as a core study for responsibilities and you have those pieces and discipline in place, I think they're really useful. I think by themselves, yeah. I, I, to your point, a lot of times in agile environments, they get ASVS into place, they read it, then they let it go and just do what they normally do. And that's not uncommon to your point. And that's 
not helpful. Yeah, it doesn't get you as far. I sort of love the the analogy of it. Like the picture that comes to my mind is is basically thinking thinking about all that infrastructure we talked about as as the same as like having you know Kubernetes in place or having like a monitoring system, right? And sort of having your build system and sort of having chosen whatever React or whatever as your sort of JavaScript framework is like all those decisions, the requirements, they're within the context of Agile, you know, even a disciplined Agile, but they're basically infrastructure. It's kind of like you, you need to build security infrastructure just like you've built your DevOps infrastructure. Yes. You know, it includes the tooling, but it also includes the competencies, sort of the, the technological requirements, you know, the equivalence of uptime and and you know, sort of time from build to production, you know, the equivalence of those in security. And then even that ties in perfectly into sort of that third, you know, before the three and a half, I guess we'll get to the half in a sec, but you know, the third element there, which is the AppSec competency, because the other thing that you say in Agile is you know, the team needs to be sort of a full stack team, right? Like you don't yes. do a front end team and a back end team if you're doing agile you know, in a proper fashion, you have a product ownership, you have some scope of that, of the system that you control, and the AppSec competency needs to be within the Agile team to get that done. You know, digging into maybe that third bit about the sort of the AppSec competency, which models do you see that work? Like, is it availability? Like, are those AppSec people a part of a different group? Or are they, and they're just like somehow affiliated, made available ta, 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 to sort of the, the dev teams building it. Do you see, do you recommend what do you think is right around, you know, having that AppSec champion be actually like a member of the development team? Is it a full-time job? Is it a competency? What do you, what do you see there that you think is like a good model for success? I'm going to answer this a little awkwardly, but we had a lot of security problems. And, and one of the dev teams I was working with, we solved the problem by removing two developers, not by adding anything, but by taking the two beginners who were writing like a huge amount of volumes every day and got them into a different project. That solved our problem. That got us to a better risk place statistically. And the point is, I want senior developers on my team. If I have a security critical product, the first thing I'm going to do is get beginners out of the way. This is a horrible thing to say. Nobody wants to hear this, but you need a, a developer, in my opinion, who's been writing code for three to five years before we can even start talking application security in most of the teams that I work with. So step one, having a senior team that already understands the rigors of process and they're actually engineers and not just code hackers. Once I have a team of engineers, I can institute all the above process, requirements, infrastructure for testing, all the pieces we need for good application security. And training becomes easier. Training doesn't have to become this difficult thing. These developers who've been around the block for a while that I should be able to explain SQL injection once in five minutes and never bring it up again, and it's never an issue again. I shouldn't have to reteach that team SQL injection every six months. Something's wrong there. Yeah. So going through teaching, having a subject matter expert, like you asked earlier, the closer that AppSec expert is to being embedded and integrated with the team, the better. Over at Google, like some of my heroes are uh, Michelle Spagnolo and Lucas Weichelbaum. These are experts in content security policy, but they're not like standard body members, like tweaking with the little variables in the standard. They're embedded inside of Google's team, implementing CSP. That's the kind of AppSec expert that I feel is the most valuable. Absolutely. Those are my two points. Have an embedded AppSec expert and a senior team of developers and be careful of the damage a novice developer can do to security on a project. It's an interesting kind of perspective. I guess the, the conversation always goes to the 
max expertise, you know, so that embedded apps expert would be the, hey, there's like base level expertise, you know, who's your high level expertise? I guess you're sort of saying, actually, you know what, the core of your problem is more from like the minimum level of expertise, like what's the sort of minimum level of competency, which again, like I love drawing analogies to like general software practices on it, you know, and this basically goes straight up to quality. And I guess you can do things like if you have novices on the team, which, you know, eventually you want to have, like all those experts have started somewhere. So if you have novices on the team, maybe you want to constrain them or sort of, you know, like have them focus on being framework users or like basically just sort of to areas where they have less ability to screw up from a security perspective by sort of working within some sandbox until they develop enough maturity to sort of build the, the secure coding. Now, Guy, you're a nice person, and you're, you're describing this from a nice person point of view. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm way more militant. I want Novus developers not to be seen. I want them to go away. And I don't mean that cruelly. It's just that every single time... I, the point is when you're a novice developer joining a senior team, you should be paying me. You're lucky because you're getting more training right now. You're getting personal attention from senior folks that you're taking away from doing their work and uh, you're not producing for me that much. So I, it's harsh and I don't mean this in a cruel way. Just, I'd rather have two very senior developers than 20 novices. That's what I'm trying to say. And I see a lot of my customers who've, who've experimented with this where they took training and they saw from three different teams that one person was a rock star. One of my customers took these three different rock stars, put them in a team together to do secure coding. And these folks were able to deliver a level of secure software that nobody else in the company could pull off. What they did was they, they built a large project, had like three medium findings after months of work. And this like cracked open the mind of the whole company. Because everybody else was trained, everybody else has tooling in place, everyone else had the same resources, but the team of senior developers, three of them who got it, ended up delivering so much better secure software than everybody else. It brings me back to a core principle of being cautious of novice developers. They tend to cost more than the benefits of having them on teams where rigorous security engineering is important. And Guy, this is a horribly unpopular opinion, but I stand by it. I've been rolling around the software industry for a long time, and every time I see a, a small but senior team, they're able to accomplish magic, including application security magic, that I haven't seen in other configurations. So that's my answer to this. Senior, educated, People who understand that we're not just singing code, that we're doing engineering, that's where I think the win is. Well, I'll, I'll, you're, you're sort of entitled to the view. I think we're not that different uh, <laughs> in our perspective. Like, I think uh, maybe I'm like, you know, giving a nice spin. I'm not, I wouldn't be offended by being called a nice person. But the, uh, I think like those other three people were sort of building those secure coding platforms. Like, they didn't let go all the sort of novice players. But what they've done is that it sort of had them build systems that used the libraries and the access system and the sandbox that those sort of trial or whatever, you know, sort of have established for them, no, in the... Uh, Anyways, we might be going in circles here. No, Point well you. taken. You know, sort of maturity, maturity of the uh, of the engineers, kind of that high quality. And I I dare say that that also kind of works well for a quality analogy, right? Like a lot of those choices, you know, you wouldn't take your novice developer to choose your JavaScript framework or sort of to build it. You know, I like, agree. For a novice developer, you do want to box them into a very specific set of duties that 
we can monitor and control and review. But I, I, I'm with you. <laughs> and give them a chance. Give some of them a chance to become, you know, from novice to expert. You're a nice, right? you're a nice like, you know, guy. The few, the few that survive. You, you know, I want, give them, give a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> I want you to give them a chance. And once you've grown them into mature engineers, I want to steal them all yeah. from you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's jump from the, the people bits to maybe that infrastructure, that sort of tooling. So, you know, I think we're sort of painting a really kind of, you know, good picture here of like, you know, what do you need to do to sort of get this done? I guess what is the sort of the tooling stack that you need today to sort of do this stuff successfully? What do you see in that sort of infrastructure? Static analysis, dynamic analysis, and third-party library analysis. Those are the three critical assessment tools that I think every single team should be running as frequently as possible. I see third-party analysis as almost a form of static analysis. It's specialized. And I don't think the static analysis tools that we traditionally look at do third-party analysis as well as they could. I think the industry has split those up pretty well. We have dedicated static analysis running every single time a developer checks in code or builds code or deploys code as frequently as we can. That's awkward because it's rare where static analysis will run quickly. <laughs> so we have to play with this whole tunings within a DevOps environment, usually tuning static analysis to run fast, then running it out of the automation environment slow on a regular basis. Yeah. I think that's almost a solved issue now. We've done a good job with, with rolling those products out across the industry. Okay, but it's a fair practice to highlight, you know, for the SaaS. So like if you do the sort of the static analysis, the sort of the SaaS application, then you do, you know, like one variant of that that is the sort of per check-in incremental lower comprehensiveness, if you will, right? So sort to of scan, yep. but that is able to scan with sufficient sort of accuracy and speed to like be reasonable for, for the dev flow to use it. And then you do an out of band sort of static analysis that's more comprehensive. That would be the model. I think that's the standard model I see in, in most places that are taking this seriously. Where assessment matters to them for their program, that's usually the, the dual way that I see static analysis rolled out in the modern world. And to miss either of those is bad. To only do it once a month in full mode, you limit the daily lint kind of checking you get when you use it every day. Yeah. And if you're only using it every day, you're missing the depth of the tool because it's, it often takes more than 10 minutes for a good static analysis tool to run across a complex code base. So you need, you need both. Cool. But this is, I think that's solved. I don't even think it's interesting anymore. It's, it's solved. If you're not doing static analysis, go do it both those ways or you're barely beginning. Let's look <laughs> at other categories, other categories. Dynamic analysis next, right? Yep. In, in my world, the best tools in dynamic are the cheapest ones. So I, I tend to use, uh, in the open source world, Zap has got a lot of decent capabilities. I can literally go to developers and say, hey, I want this feature. And depending on my ability to support them, I can get it. <laughs> I, I think tools like, like Burp have become really popular as well. Their dynamic scanning engine will go head to head against any of the big players. And then the work is getting these dialed into automation. So I can now run them not once a month with a consultant, but I can run them every single day in some fashion. And I think the work of getting dynamic added into your automation environment is a little bit trickier because of the, the nature of how DAS works. For static analysis, it's got to touch code and I'm done. For dynamic, I need a whole dev infrastructure. So it's more complicated and more work mm -hmm. to get dynamic rolled out, but it's a part of, of all the core. Yeah. Now, where dynamic is screwing up, though, dynamic, even though the tooling of dynamic is getting better, the effectiveness is going down dramatically hmm. because it's getting harder to look at all the JavaScript frameworks and it's getting harder to look at APIs and mean stack. And that's 
the core of development now. The web app has migrated to these thick JavaScript applications, React, Angular, and Vue that talk to backend APIs. Mm -hmm. These are two things that traditionally DAST has not done a great job at. So there's area for innovation when it comes to JavaScript static analysis, even to this day. God, we should start another company on the side, get a few good (laughs) researchers, and do a dedicated JavaScript security company, JavaScript static analysis, JavaScript framework analysis, JavaScript education. I think that's a gap in the industry right now. But that's my opinion on DAST in general. Okay, perfect. Great practices. I don't think there's anything for me to repeat there. So that was well articulated. SAS, DAST, and then the third bit, open source analysis. Guy, I'm not saying this because I'm on your podcast, but I believe that third-party security analysis in my world is the number one issue. More important than SQL injection now because of how problematic it is to deal with this because of how poor the ecosystems, like in particular in my world, Maven and NPM, the Mm -hmm. big code repositories of the Java and JavaScript ecosystem, these are not run with security in mind at all, in my opinion. It is a complete bleep show how bad it is. And we desperately need tooling that can go deep into the JAR world and deep into obscure things like I need to know if this third-party React module is decent for me to use. And I need third-party security library tooling. And I don't think there's any option here. This needs to run as frequently as possible. What I like about third-party analysis is I can run it in under a minute often or within a couple of minutes. So it's built from the ground up to work in a DevOps environment. And if you're not using something to do third-party security analysis – on a, like 100 times a day, I think you're negligent at this point. The hard part about this is when people are given awareness about third-party libraries and they see, oh no, these <laughs> 170 libraries are out of date from security, the initial hit to get up to date can sometimes be years. So anyways, those are the three kinds of tooling that I think every development shop should be doing as a bare minimum to be assessing the security of their applications during development. Yeah, no, awesome. Well, I'm you know, preaching to the choir clearly sort of about the, uh, that third bit. Mm-hmm. I do think uh, one kind of good practice to sort of share on the, you know, backlog, right? Like, you know, as you like take the blinds off and you see the disturbing number of issues that, that you have there, you know, clearly one aspect of it is invest in remediation. But uh, the other bit that uh, we've kind of embraced from uh, the performance budget world is to draw lines to sort of not get any worse, right? So you can do whatever. We do some of this at Sneak, but you can, if you want it, you can roll your own, which is to take a snapshot of where you are and for starters say, hey, put something in the build that would only fail or in your pull requests or whatever, that would only fail if you're introducing another new library that has a vulnerable component and alongside that, introduce something that tracks your dependencies and alerts you on new vulnerable libraries. So the notion being you roll something out, you know, like again, a bit shameless plug here, Snake could be it, but like this concept, you can roll this with, with whatever you want. Uh, just sort of roll something out that draws a line and says, I shall not get any worse. And it's a concept, as I said, that we kind of pulled from the world of performance. In performance, you said, hey, I want to like, uh, Tim Cadlick actually popularized it. So saying, I want to improve my web page speed. But for starters, I need to like stop making it worse. So why don't I just take a measurement, you know, measure your page 10 times, see how long it takes to run, and then just put like whatever that range in the build, and every time run a test, and if it takes more than that amount, fail the build. Like don't allow that through, uh, right? Or say I'm only allowed, like I've got how many JavaScript libraries do I have on my page? 17, you know, 
keep it to 17. If I add an 18, you have to take one away, you know, like or things like that. So you, you sort of establish from a security perspective and say, I might not be where I want to be, but I'm not going to get any worse. And then you eat away at your sort of uh, security debt over time. So Guy, the best way I can flatter you is to say, I'm going to go and give a talk at a conference or give a talk in training. <laughs> I'm going to cite that exact concept of how to properly roll out. This is an interstitial process where I can stop the bleeding, at least detect when a new third-party library that's insecure is introduced, and still let the old one survive for now during this interstitial process of rolling out third-party tools. This fills a gap in my mind. I love it. And I promise you, I'm going to talk about it in the future, giving you no credit. I'm sorry. I don't have time for that. And I'm going to act really intelligent, and it's the best way I can flatter you. And I use sneak at the end of that, and we'll be, uh, we'll be tied. I'll slap some, some sneak in there. <laughs> and, Guy, I want to say it again. My, my claim that third-party analysis security is the number one issue, I, I didn't change that to, to make you smile. That's my honest opinion because it's, it's big. It covers every possible vulnerability out there. And it's something that, that a lot of people are just flat out frightened to deal with. Think of the culture of software development. Once you get everything working, don't touch it. It works. And that's been the mentality for decades. And that mentality is destructive when it comes to third-party library security. This is why we're talking. This is why we're here. Yeah, agreed. This has been awesome. Before I let you sort of uh, disappear here into your sort of uh, training uh, black holes, I like to ask every guest that comes on the show, you know, if you have sort of one pet peeve or word of advice, you know, one thing you want to tell a team that is looking to level up their security poster, you know, what's the one thing they should do or they should not do that you want to sort of convey? That's a hard one because I want to answer the question, well, what 200 things should you do? But let's go to one. All right, one. This is a boring answer, but it's good. So several of my customers have software that's so big, like 400 plus microservices, right? They're having trouble keeping their hands around it. It's just too big. Even with lots of smart architects, all the right resources, nobody understands what's going on because it's just too complex of software. This is the bane of application security development. The way I've seen people handle that is to put mammoth focus on one easy thing, logging. Logging, logging like, like mad people. They log every single thing across every single service so they get really good visibility into what's happening. So when things go wrong, they see anomalies, they can take immediate action. This is the 10th item in the OWASP top 10. Do good logging. I tend to, yeah, go ahead and log. Now let's move on with our lives and talk about more important things. This has become more important in big software. Big software is hard to lock down just because of the nature of its complexity. Mm -hmm. Adding in lots and lots of logging is a relatively simple engineering task, I dare say. It gives us mammoth visibility. So I'm here to tell you, take your log seriously. That visibility is crucial to runtime security analysis and, and understanding when problems are happening in the real world. So let's log, guy. Let's log like, like crazy. Let's log everything. Let's go log wild. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Here, you've got a quote. Now I can steal something off you and not give you any credit for it. In the, uh... Log wild, baby. <laughs> That's awesome advice. Chip, this has been a pleasure. Thanks a lot for, uh, for coming on the show. Guy, seeing all of your success of your firm is well-deserved. I'm happy for you. And thank you for working so hard to solve such a critical and difficult problem in AppSec. Keep on rocking. Cool. Much appreciated. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and hope you join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. 
If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or get involved in this community, find us at thesecuredeveloper.com or on Twitter at thesecuredev. Visit heavybit.com to find additional episodes, full transcriptions, and other great podcasts. See you next time.